I'm going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the last part of verse 54 through 56, and I'm reading from the King James Version today. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who giveth the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. There's a story in Acts chapter 3 that goes this way. Peter and John go to the temple, and um, they're going to pray, and they meet a lame man on the way. Maybe you know the song. And they end up healing the lame man in the name of Jesus. And as a result of that event, what we learn after, it was quite the hubbub, and what we learn after that event was that 5,000 men, um, not to mention women and children because they weren't counted in that number, 5,000 men and, and plus women and children begin to believe in Jesus and they begin to follow him. And just before this, A few weeks maybe, Peter is preaching the first message ever about Jesus, and after he speaks, 3,000 people believe, and they are baptized. And so I want you to just think about what that means. What's happened there? In a matter of weeks, at least 8,000 people are following Jesus. Way more is likely when you add in women and children that may not have been counted. And so Jesus, in a matter of weeks, goes viral without the internet, right? There's already a mega church going on in this situation. And the question is, how did that happen? How did they know about Jesus? Did they read a Bible? No. They didn't have one. What they had was Peter, and they had John, and they had a guy named Matthew, and they had a guy named James, and all of these first followers talked about what they had seen and what they had experienced when it came to their relationship with Jesus, and that alone changed history. Maybe in a matter of weeks, 10 to 20,000 people begin to follow Jesus. And you can't take results like that and just blow them off and just sweep them under the rug. Oh, that doesn't, you know, Christianity, uh, it's, it's all a made-up thing. No, 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 no. The only thing that explains this force of people doing what they did is that something happened that changed the game. Something had to happen for centuries-old Jewish traditions to change literally overnight. Worshiping on a Sabbath became worshiping on Sunday morning and celebrating by sharing bread and drinking wine together to bind them together in this belief about who Jesus was. And that's something, that event is the very heart of the message of these first believers. And that's what we come to today with the O. The O is going to kind of do double duty for us. But remember, we've been studying what this early message is, this first message that was preached about Jesus. And we find that it is about, he is king. They all said, no matter where they were preaching about Jesus, they all said he was sent by God. He was, he's king. And, and you need to listen, okay? Then 
they all said, without fail, he was nailed to a cross. In stands for nailed, where he died and he was buried in a tomb. O is going to stand for overcome, overcame. And because that's what he did, he overcame the grave. It's also going to stand for offers because he offers something to us as well. Because of what he was able to overcome, he offers the same to us. And then worship uh, will be our W that we'll talk about next week. And so today we come to the third part of this core message that gets repeated over and over by the early followers of Jesus. They all say he's king, he was nailed to a cross, and he died, and today we're going to have our little Bible study about what bullet point number three is. I'm going to show you all the scriptures where we get this word overcame. So we're going to start with Peter in Acts chapter 2. I'll try to go through these very quickly. Um, He says in verse 24, "Uh, you crucified and killed by the hands of all those men, this Jesus, but God, what's the word? Raised him up. Up And then in the next verse, uh, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all, what's that word? Witnesses. Verse uh, 15 of chapter 3, Peter is talking again, and he says, you killed the author of life whom God, what's the word? Raised from the dead. To this we are all, what's the word? witnesses. Uh, Peter, again, in chapter 4, is going to say, by the name of Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, um, this man is standing before you well. That's the, the event that I referenced earlier. In, chapter, in verse 33 of that same verse, um, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus is what the apostles were giving their testimony about. In chapter 5, The God of our fathers, what's the word? Raised Jesus. And next verse, we are witnesses to these things. In chapter 10, Peter is preaching to the Gentiles for the very first time, the people who are not Jewish. And he says, but God, what's the word? Raised him on the third day and made him to appear. Um, Not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as, what's the word? witnesses. Yeah. Uh, In chapter 13, Paul is preaching and he says, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his, what's the word? Witnesses. And then in Paul in chapter 17 says, it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise is the word from the dead. Paul in Athens in uh, verse 31, go, go right ne- to the next one, yeah. Um, because of uh, this, he has been given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. God has fixed a day where he'll judge the world, and he's proven that by raising Jesus from the dead. One more in chapter 26. Paul is in front of some uh, really... Um, authority figures, uh, some great big authority figures of Rome, and he says that by the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to, what's the word? Rise from the dead. He would proclaim both light to our people and to the Gentiles. Now, it's pretty easy in that little Bible study that we just did to see what is in every message about Jesus, right? 
And it is this third part that we come to. And this third part, like I said, has two parts. And so the first part of this O is that he overcame death. Jesus was raised back to life by God. And every message without fail, when they talk about Jesus, these early believers, they do not fail to mention this point, that God raised him from the death. Now, right away, if you are a reasonable person, your first thought, if, especially if this is all new to you, your first thought is going to be, wait a minute, is that possible? Is that even possible? And, and of course, that's kind of a rhetorical question. It's kind of a skeptical response because it means that I'm not really sure that I'm willing to give this the time of day. I'm just kind of going to blow it off as not even a possibility. And so most, a lot of people can never get past this question. Is it even possible for resurrection to take place, and that's a sad thing because then they never are able to get to the place where they're ever able to entertain the evidence of the resurrection. And so, let's start from square one, and let's ask, is this even possible? And I want you, I want you to hang with me here because we're going to get a little philosophical just for a couple minutes, just for a couple minutes, okay? If you are a human being, you only have two options in what you believe. Number one, your first option is that there is a God that he, uh, and that he is the creator. Uh, your second option is to not believe in God, to believe that there's no creator, okay? So let's deal with the first one. The first one, if you believe in God, then on some level, you believe that all that we see in the world was made by this God, by this creator, And if that's your position, that's great, because then when it comes to the resurrection, it will be easy for you. Because if you have a creator who created, then you can surely have a creator who restores life. If he created life in the beginning, then it shouldn't be that much harder for him to bring life forth from life that once was, okay? So if you believe in God, then the resurrection is possible. What about the second one? What if I don't believe in God? Okay, the next question is, if you don't believe in God, then where did all that we see come from? And the answer that you'll probably get is, it just happened. It was randomness and a bunch of time, and we go from a great big boom to rocks to people who talk about the boom and the rocks and how we got here, okay? And that is um, the thought that people have when they don't believe in God. That's how we got here. It was just totally random. But do you see, you've just lost the argument as to whether resurrection is possible or not. Because if you believe that randomness accounts for everything you see, then you've just conceded that everything is possible. Because there are no rules, it's just all about randomness and accidents, and that means that anything is possible, including the resurrection. It could also just happen, because if living humans come from dead rocks, then life came from death already, so the resurrection is absolutely possible. Here's all I'm saying here. No matter what worldview you're coming from, it is impossible to say that resurrection is impossible. 
That's all I'm saying. Okay. How many of you appreciated our little two-minute philosophical discussion? There's like, okay, well, I'm, I'm, I'm excited by that because, uh, yeah, you've given me permission to do that again someday. I was keeping it short because I was just sure there would be like two hands. I'm not really sure that that's, okay. Anyway, now, let's agree that, uh, that the resurrection is possible. And if it's possible, then we have to take the next step, which is the people claiming to have seen a resurrected back from the grave Jesus. Do you, did you notice, I, I made you say it so, so it would be fresh in your mind. Did you notice how many statements there were, outright statements of witness? We saw, we heard, we witnessed this resurrection take place. And when you read those kind of statements, the logical question to ask is, Okay, can I trust these witnesses? What kind of people were these people who were writing about Jesus and saying, we saw him and we ate with him and we hung around with him for a few weeks before he left this world? What kind of people are these? These early believers said that they saw a resurrected Jesus, but can I trust them? Are the early accounts that I'm reading, are they just fabrications or are these real eyewitness accounts of what actually happened? Now, spoiler alert, my premise today is that, yes, they are actual accounts of what actually happened. They are true. And I'm going to give you reasons uh, why we can trust these accounts as reliable. Um, This is not an exhaustive list, but there's a lot of food for thought in these uh, things. And so I think we can trust that these early eyewitness accounts are true for several reasons. First, because an alternate story was fabricated. An alternate story was fabricated. From the beginning, Jesus' friend Matthew writes about a story that was actually fabricated by the Jewish priests. Um, Matthew writes that after Jesus rose, some of the guards that were at uh, Jesus' tomb went to the Jewish priests. They told them what had happened. Uh, Jesus is alive, he resurrected, and he walked out of the tomb. And here's what the Jewish authorities did. Matthew writes, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers, they bribed them, and they said, here's what we need you to tell the people. His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and you will keep you out of, uh, we'll keep you out of trouble. And so they took the money, they took the bribe, they did what they were directed, and whenever somebody mentioned the empty tomb, they said, oh, the disciples stole the body. And Matthew writes, this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now, I want you to note that last line. This story has been spread around the Jews to this day. In other words, it was a very plausible explanation that a lot of people bought. A lot of, because it makes sense, right? A lot of people would buy it easily. Oh, he's not, he's not risen. Is that what they're saying? No, the disciples came and just stole the body. Oh, is that what happened? It's plausible, right? Now, let's say that Matthew and all the other disciples are in fact making all this up about Jesus. Why Jewish people? 
would step out of their centuries-old trusted culture and religion uh, by way of a made-up story is beyond me and beyond us, but hypothetically, let's say that. If you're going to make up a story to show the world that Jesus rose from the dead, here's what you don't include. You don't include a perfectly plausible theory to counter your own story. You don't do that. Those who didn't believe in the tomb was empty said it was because the disciples came and stole the body. That's what was being circulated by the eyewitnesses uh, that were at the tomb, the Roman guards. And so Matthew, simply by recording this fact, proves that there was an empty tomb. Because if there wasn't an empty tomb, that theory would never have been needed. And Matthew never would have written it. And so we can trust that Matthew is telling us the truth. Here's the second one. The first eyewitnesses who saw Jesus. Do you know who they were? The first eyewitnesses in every gospel account to see Jesus were women. Some of you know this. All four accounts say that the women went to the tomb and we could say it this way, that Jesus appeared to his sisters from other misters before his brothers from other mothers. That's free today. That's, that's what you get for coming through the snow. Lines like that. Isn't that great? Yes. Why does that matter? Hey, listen, that, the first century was different than today. Okay? I'm not saying it was right. I'm just saying it was different. And in the first century culture, women could not inherit property. They could not give evidence in court because their testimony was inadmissible, and we assume that this is because of a prevailing belief that women could not be trusted to tell the truth. So what that tells us, when all four accounts of the resurrection of Jesus say that the people who saw him first were women, what that tells us is that the initial testimony to a resurrected Christ has to be true because women were the first eyewitnesses. Again, if you're making this story up, you would never write it that way. If this was a lie to bolster the claims of Jesus being raised from the dead, they would have never made the first witnesses women. You don't write it that way. You don't make it up that way. They would have made the story read so that it was credible, so that there were credible witnesses that would see Jesus first. Anyone would have been credible in the first century other than women. And I'm talking about in the first century. Don't throw stones at me. Throw stones at the first century, okay? That's just the way it was. And the only explanation for this to be written was that the first witnesses were, in fact, women, and what they saw was a resurrected Jesus. Add to that all of the times that Paul and Matthew, years later, are able to say to people, hey, we have people you can go talk to about this. We have people who are still alive, who walked with him, heard him, saw him after he was crucified and dead in a tomb, and can tell you, yes, he's alive because I was there. There are all kinds of adult people walking around Palestine who could say that. And if it never happened, if the first believers never would appeal to those kind of witnesses in that way, if the resurrection never happened. Um, the third, we can trust that these accounts by the first believers are true because some were on the fence. 
somewhere on the fence. Matthew says it this way, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. That's what he says. Huh. And in the opening of Acts, Luke writes it this way, after his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. And those two verses tell us that even these first eyewitnesses doubted what they were seeing. And so Jesus has to spend lots of time convincing them, giving them proofs that he really was alive, that he really was in front of them, alive and real. And first, it tells us that these first believers were not gullible guppies. They were people with level heads. They were skeptics who were resistant at first, saying, you know what, prove it to me. And they're like us. Because I don't, I don't know that there's anybody in this room that hasn't at some point in their spiritual journey following Jesus said something like this, Jesus, if I just had proof, man, if you would just show up in front of me, it doesn't need to be for long, but if you would just show up in front of me and so that I can see the nail scars and you can maybe tell me something about me that nobody else knows so that I know it's you, if you just show up and give me proof, then I'd be able to really believe. Anybody with me? Two of you? Okay, all right. They're like us. Every one of us has said that at some point of our journey, and with this idea, we can prove that those early accounts by the eyewitnesses are reliable. Why? Because you believe that Jesus showing up to you would remove all doubt that he existed. But I need you to understand that the first believers tell us he did that to them, and still some doubted. How would you know that that's even possible? See, in our scenario, that's not even a possibility. In our minds, we think unequivocally, if Jesus shows up in front of me and starts talking to me, then I will believe. Unbelief is never even an option. And yet, that's what happened to the first eyewitnesses. He did show up. He did all those things. And still, some doubted. They weren't sure. And the reasonable explanation is that it must have happened that way. These first witnesses are absolutely telling us the truth because who would even know that it was possible to still doubt after seeing a risen Lord other than people who have actually seen the risen Lord? You don't write it that way. Nobody making up the story would make it up that way. Those lines would never be conceived, let alone written in a fabricated, made-up story. And the only reason that it says that Jesus showed up and the people continued to doubt was because Jesus showed up and they continued to doubt. And we can trust these eyewitnesses. Here's the last one. The future of the church. The future of the church. What happened after all these people witnessed a resurrected Jesus? Well, we're told that Jesus gave them the mission. He said, I want you to go into all the world and teach the people and lead them to follow me and baptize them in the name of the Father and Son of the Holy Spirit. And guess what? They went and did it. 
they went all over, and they were pretty successful in carrying out his mission. Historians are pretty baffled by that. How in the world did they pull that off? This teeny group of marginal people, there's, they have no education to speak of, they have no standing, they have no resources, they're, they're largely outcasts by society, but in 300-ish years, they sweep the Roman Empire and they become such a dominant force that the emperor of Rome himself becomes a Christian. How is that possible? There's never been any movement like this with this much success without some sort of physical force. But Christians never wielded swords, they never fought battles, and yet they conquered Rome anyway and achieved this commanding position in the most important society in the world, and they did it, relatively speaking, overnight. How'd they do that? People who study the early church give us some uh, fascinating reasons why they were so so successful. Um, Number one, they say that Christians died extremely well. Persecution of Christians was brutal. It was common. Christians were tortured. They were cast to lions. They They were burned. They were crucified just like Jesus. They were drugged through the streets and all kinds of other cruelties. And yet, even as they died, they never despaired. There was a love. There was a joy about them. Even in the face of death, people were astonished by this. They died singing sometimes. There was a radiance. The more pagans killed the Christians, the more they wondered what they had, they had that made them so calm and so hopeful. One of the early church fathers writes this, the blood of the martyrs is seed. The blood of the martyrs is seed. In other words, do your worst to me. Cut my head off, spill my blood, cut me open with a sword because my blood will seep into the ground and it will cause hundreds of more Christians to grow from it. Kill me and you'll spread me. That's the idea. And Christians were almost happy to die. That makes no sense. Nobody else died like that. Number two, Christians were unbelievably compassionate. There's a letter by one of the early Roman emperors that didn't like the Christians. He wished Christianity would go away. He wrote this, Christianity is growing so fast because they care for the poor. Every other other religion takes care of their own, but these Christians take care of everybody. Christians were known for staying in towns that were infested by plague and disease that other people were fleeing from. The Christians would stay so that they could take care of the sick. And when the sick got well and they realized that all of their friends and family had bolted on them, then guess what they became? They became Christians because of the Christians who stayed. All kinds of stories about the compassion of believers as they adopted abandoned children. Nobody else did this. It was an incredible thing to live this way. Finally, Christians were absolutely inclusive, absolutely inclusive. No one had ever seen a religion that accepted people like Christianity did. Every other religion appealed to some ethnic group or some people that had a certain economic status or class. Some pagan religions were for very educated people. Some were for very uneducated people. Only Christianity was, it was the first way to come along and say, Everyone is welcome. 
The gospel is for everyone, every, every class, every race, every gender, every ethnicity, everyone. The gospel is the only way. Jesus is the only way. But at the same time, it's the most inclusive way ever because anyone can come. And those are the reasons that historians give when they try to make sense of how the Christians succeeded and grew so rapidly. And all of those things that I just rattled off, they do explain how. But what they don't explain is why. Why did they die well? Why were Christians so compassionate? Why were Christians so inclusive? And that's where the historians have trouble. That's where they're baffled. It's not because they don't know the answer, because they don't want to say it out loud. One writes this way, it's clear that at the very beginning of Christianity, there must have occurred a vast release of energy, virtually unparalleled in history, without which the future course of the religion is inexplicable. Oh, poor guy. Do you, do you hear what he said? He wants to say it, but he knows that he'll be laughed out of the university. And so he just calls it a vast release of energy. Do you know what that's code for? The only thing that could cause Christians to die so well, to have so much compassion, to want everyone on their side no matter where they came from, the only energy that could produce that kind of living is the resurrection of Jesus because he overcame death. That's the energy. Jesus came back from the dead and proclaimed this, I have the keys to death, and I'm unlocking the door for you so that you can walk out of death too. And the experience of a risen Jesus, a risen Lord, that's the game changer that made the difference. And so we can be sure that the first believers are telling the truth, and the second part is the most thrilling. And I don't I won't spend a lot of time on this, but with every message that is preached about Jesus, overcoming death, there's an offer for us. And the offer is that we can overcome death as well. Because Jesus overcame death, he offers us the same. We can overcome death too. Uh, Peter says, for the forgiveness of your sins, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit when you present yourself to Jesus and follow him. Peter says, when you respond, there's an offer for you of blessing. That's in chapter three, verse 26. In chapter four, there's salvation in no one else for there's no other name in heaven among by, uh, given among men by which we must be saved. Chapter five, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sin. There's an offer. His death means something. Peter, in chapter 10, says, for everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin through his name. Paul says, through this man, Jesus, who was raised from the dead, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And everyone who believes in him is freed from everything which you could not be freed from by the law of Moses. And so, did you see the offer in some of those verses? Mostly, it's stated as forgiveness of sin. 
but it's also referred to as freedom, as refreshing, as salvation, as a blessing. And we'll say it this way, that the offer is that's proven too good to be true by the resurrection of Jesus is that you can be forgiven of sin and be right with God, and that means death is dead. Resurrection proves that sin can be forgiven by this man. And every message points to this. John Piper says it this way, if sin is paid for and righteousness is provided and justice is satisfied, then nothing can keep Christ or his people in the grave. And every message has this ring to it, that belonging to Jesus means that we will be raised from the dead just like he was raised from the dead. And when we're right with God, that means life forever with him. And that matters. Because death is the enemy that lurks behind every other enemy that you think you have. Death is behind it all. You worry about the death of your body, but you also worry about the death of your worth. You worry about the death of love in your life. You worry about the death of dreams in your life. You worry about the death of relationships in your life. Death is behind all of our sorrows, but because of the resurrection of Jesus, death is a defeated enemy. That's the scripture that was read today. Death is swallowed up, is what Paul says, in victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? There is no more. Death is toothless because of what Jesus has done to death. Death has been swallowed up. It means death has been completely and utterly destroyed. But not only that, it means it's been used for life. George Herbert, a great Christian poet, said this, death used to be an executioner, but the resurrection of Christ makes him nothing but a gardener. I love that line. When life beats you up, the resurrection says this is not the end. The resurrection says this is just the process. Death will try to bury you. But when death buries you, you have to realize that because of the resurrection of Jesus, all he's doing to you is planting you. And you're going to come up better than you were before. That's what the resurrection of Jesus means. Because he overcame. We can too. Father, we thank you that there is no greater hope than we have than the resurrection. Jesus conquered death so that it's, it's not a pit, but it's just a doorway to an unimaginable life. Father, we thank you today for the work you did raising back to life what was a dead in the body of Jesus. We see that and we have hope that you can take the dead parts of us. Even before we're ever lowered into a grave, there are parts of us that have died in this life, even though we're still living. But we know because of the resurrection, you can make them alive again too. Because we have a strong, victorious Savior who is alive. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.